Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Matthew chapter 5? We're going to pick up in verse 27 as we continue to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to read that scripture right at the very beginning today, a little bit of a change. So would you now please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, as we take a look at this text today, uh, we recognize that We've heard so many messages. We know these words by heart, Father, and we feel like we know what they say, but we would pray for a for fresh reminder today and perhaps even some fresh insight and what you've called us to be and to do in regard to this area of faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So, show of hands, how many of you were wondering if I might just skip this portion of Scripture today? Never really entered my mind. You know me. I've only been here four months, but you know that. Uh, certainly would have been easier for me because the subject matter here is uncomfortable. It's a little bit awkward to talk about, especially in the context of, of corporate uh, worship. And I want you to know that I prayed and I, and I wrestled over this message as I do all of them, perhaps more so with this one. And it came down, besides we're not going to skip any, any verses, we're going to be faithful to the text, It came down to this for me as well. I wonder, part of me wonders, if the church, if pastors and parents, if we had not taken more seriously our role in addressing a serious subject in a serious way, even when that subject is awkward and uncomfortable to talk about, maybe, just maybe, our young people would be better equipped to face the distinct moral and philosophical challenges they face in this day. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, our culture would not have descended into the moral chaos in which we live today. And make no mistake, that the challenges confronting our children and grandchildren are significantly greater in potential influence, pervasiveness, uniqueness, and with more severe consequences than we faced as their parents and grandparents. Challenges that can only be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit working within. Challenges that can only be dealt with by those who are sold out to walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Challenges that demand a biblical worldview if they are to be overcome. And what's at stake is nothing less than the eternal destiny of our children's and grandchildren's souls as they grow, as we seek to parent and grandparent them in the face of today's challenges, and as we seek to live ourselves in this difficult day. So what are some of those challenges that are unique to our time? In no particular order, those challenges include the music industry. Popular lyrics and associated videos often portray casual sex with no mention of permanent costs. In fact, a a recent analysis of music videos shows that 60% portray sexual emotions and impulses, not to mention the graphic displays of provocative clothing and sexually suggestive activities. 
Another more obvious challenge they and we face is the proliferation of pornography on the Internet. With one click of a mouse, people can be transported to the most erotic destination imaginable where the most vulgar, vulgar images are displayed. And the creators of those websites make no doubt about it are out to make money, but, but part of the long game, part of Satan's strategy here has been to normalize what has long been considered blatantly immoral and to marginalize what has long been considered moral. I use that in the past tense because that's already been accomplished. And then there's a challenge brought on by the fashion world and the tendency to sexualize adolescent and even pre-adolescent girls with revealing designs. According to a recent study, up to 30% of young girls' clothing available online in the United States is sexualizing. Another challenge, somewhat newer on the scene, is primetime television. It used to be fairly safe, but now primetime television spews out one sexual innuendo after, an- after another. Researchers tell us that on average, teenage viewers see 143 incidents of sexual behavior each week with portrayals three to four times as many between unmarried partners as between spouses. And as much as 80% of all movies on cable television, network television, and streaming, 80% of them have sexual content. Again, like pornographers, Hollywood's out to make money. Don't make any mistake about that. But it's also an objective to normalize immorality and to marginalize traditional Christian morality. And then there's the veneration of international heroes in sports and and music and and movies, not all, but many of whom live immoral lives and and spread that immorality around the world through through the powerful influence of media. They are idolized and accepted by millions and millions of people, particularly our children. And then utterly unique to our time, to, to any time in recorded history, is the explosive rise of transgender ideology and the whole LGBTQ agenda. A philosophical mindset, and this is oversimplification, but a philosophical mindset that says you are what you feel rather than you are what God created you to be. This is an ever-strengthening, unrelenting promotion of this ideology that's going on in our country right now, continuing through the use of, of media in all its forms, through indoctrination in our public schools from the earliest grades to graduate school, and increasingly through legislation at the state, federal, and local levels. It's an ideological promotion, make no mistake about it, that is bent on influencing and capturing the minds of our very youngest. It's as if the world has collapsed into this coma of unrighteousness and left behind God-given and and time-honored moral values and principles. this This is the cultural quagmire that our youth must navigate just at the time when their hormones are raging and their emotions are making life perplexing enough already. As severe as the pressures they face in our culture every day, peer pressure, as it has been for all time, remains a major factor. Listen to me, young people. Not everybody is having sex, okay? While the media, from the music moguls to the movie makers, to those on social media, even some of the people in your own school may make it seem like everybody is having sex. There are just as many Christian teens and a lot of non-Christian as well, who are waiting until marriage. 
Doing something just because everyone else is doing it, you know what that is. That's giving in to peer pressure. And it takes a strong person, albeit, or a person backed up by the strength of God to resist temptation. But when you do, when you stand up to temptation, young people, to peer pressure, you're actually saving yourself from committing a sin that has potentially dangerous, and hear me carefully here, lifelong consequences, potentially, as well as being a good Christian witness to your fellow teenagers. But it's not just our youth, is it, before they feel like I'm picking on them today. Our leaders, our educators, our pastors, our politicians are under attack, and many are failing. This is just one of the 800-pound gorillas in the room today as we look at this text. I'm talking about moral failure in the men you're supposed to be able to trust. In surveys of current pastors, the numbers vary somewhat, but research indicates that 34%, 34% of pastors wrestle with the temptation of pornography on a regular basis. And between 30 and 40%, Say they've had an extramarital affair at some point since the beginning of their ministry. If those numbers are even close, the problem is bigger than we understand and are willing to accept. And a leading cause, I would suggest, of the dearth of solid, strong biblical leadership in our nation's churches. But of course, it's not just pastors and church leaders. Christian men in general are having an alarmingly difficult time abstaining from the sexual sins of viewing pornography and adultery. And church family, just so we're clear at this point right here, when a married man or a married woman uses pornography, they are committing adultery. Okay? Again, according to Barner Research, 54% of born-again Christian men view porn at least once a month. For women, the statistics are lower, but not insignificant. You see those numbers up there for females. Now, the Gospel Coalition and others will point out to us, and I believe they're right, that many of the men and women who have surveyed are nominal Christians. They're Christians in name only. Okay? We've talked about that before. And I hope that's so. I personally believe that that's so. And I want to believe the numbers are incorrect, that they're skewed high. But it's even, if it's even half the number... If it's even half the number that the third surveys are revealing, it's still tragically bad news for families and churches. When it comes to infidelity among those who say they're religious, according to some reports, the number is nearly as high as the national average, which hovers around 60%. This despite the fact that those who say married women and men having an affair is morally unacceptable has never exceeded 10% in the last 24 years, 22 years. The statistics are startling, I know, and I said I hope they're skewed. I hope they're skewed high. But regardless, they just knock the wind right out of you. But they also confirm what we already know, church family. They confirm that there's a desperate problem with pornography and extramarital affairs in the church, and two, there's a desperate need for the church to step forward with solutions. Church family, I, I, I point out these alarming and disturbing numbers and trends to you today not to alarm you not to condemn you but to serve as a wake-up call the call is to action it is just as franklin graham said just this past week it is as if every demon from hell has been turned loose in our culture today we cannot be deceived 
We need to get ready and be prepared. If you proclaim the gospel, if you speak out against the culture, there are forces that will try to shut you up. But we must love folks enough to warn them this way of life being perpetuated is sin. And I would add, and the consequences are eternal. Now, most people understand what adultery is. We all understand how marriages are adversely affected by it. It can, it can, it can seem like in our sexualized culture and with the spiritual condition overall of the church that anything goes these days. That's not true. Sin has never been tolerated by God, and neither should it be tolerated by His church. Now, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for all who will come to Him is that for every sin they've ever committed or ever will commit, the penalty has been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Adultery is an ugly thing. It's an ugly thing that has very ugly consequences, but despite that ugliness, incredible mercy and redemption can result. Beloved, if we as Christ's body would only handle adultery the way our Savior handled it, more people would be restored to right relationship with the Father. What Jesus has been talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness and the law. He knew that the scribes and the Pharisees would never fulfill the law in the way they were going about it. In fact, he warned, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He knew that the religious leaders had the wrong attitude. He knew they had the wrong perspective, that they had lost their sense of direction and, in fact, had made the law an end in itself. According to the Pharisaic interpretation of the law, you shall not commit adultery. A person was not guilty of the transgression until they had actually committed the act. A person might be consumed with lust. They might even justify and encourage adultery. But so long as neither circumstances nor opportunity allowed him or her to do the actual deed, then he or she was still safely righteous. Now, Jesus did not say that everyone who has a sexual impulse is an adulterer at heart. That would have condemned every normal person who's ever lived. This was no puritanical rebuke of every sexual thought by Jesus. He was simply saying that there's no difference between the act of adultery... Let me get to that one for you. There's no difference between the act of adultery and the willingness to commit adultery... So let's, let's just take a look this morning, just in the time we have remaining, at some of the principles and some safeguards that can help us to avoid the sin of sexual, the snare of sexual sin. And one important principle for us to grasp this morning is that we were created for companionship. We were created for companionship. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, and when He looked at Adam alone in the garden, and so God created woman to be a helpmate, to be a companion. For men Now, women, it's not because, as you're thinking right now, that he looked at Adam and decided he could do better. That's not it at all. This is what God had in mind from the start. He created a man. He created a woman from the man. Then he brought the man and the woman together. Genesis 2.23 tells us that Adam looked at Eve and said, She is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, thereby acknowledging her to be a part of himself. And, th and then God brought them together in a one flesh union. His desire was for them to have a satisfying, special, intimate union 
in which they would find joy and pleasure. And he goes right to the heart of the matter, Jesus does, as he always does, and says that adultery doesn't just happen, it begins with the heart. Listen, lest we think that Jesus directs his teaching on adultery only to men, he doesn't do that any more than he meant only married men here. But the example he gives here is any man looking at any woman with lust, with lustful intent. And in his teaching, Jesus takes on this double standard that existed regarding sexual sin. He denies the right of a man to get the pass when it comes to adultery, and he does so on the basis that the woman, whether she is someone's wife or not, is a person. She possesses the same dignity as does the man. Adulterous looks, therefore, are sins against her, not just her husband. He approaches things, Jesus does, quite differently from the prevailing attitude of his day, which said that the problem of lust among men was unmanageable. And it, that it was, it, was, it was a problem because men's lust was the, the fault of the female because of her alluring appearance. Man can't help himself. Beloved, Jesus holds us responsible for our actions to others. So he doesn't warn his disciples about women. He warns his disciples about themselves. He doesn't say, do not look. He says, do not look with lust. So the problem resides with the one who looks, not the one who's being looked at. So the answer, is not the, the answer to the problem is not to keep women in hiding. The answer to the problem is to deal with the impurity in the heart of the one who's doing the looking. It demands self-discipline, strong self-discipline, so that the glance that notices doesn't turn into a gaze that sexualizes. Sexual attraction is part of being human. And Jesus doesn't condemn us, beloved, for noticing the beauty or the handsomeness of someone of the opposite sex. His teaching on, look, on, the, on the look with lustful intent is really similar if you think back to his teaching on anger. The, the verb, the tense of the verb in the phrase here conveys the idea of one who looks and goes on looking and goes on looking so that they're nurturing or cherishing this look. While there's, there's no sin in subtle attraction to the opposite sex, the problem, the problem is that attraction can quickly be energized into sinful lust. The woman then is dehumanized by that lustful look. She's made into an object. So fundamental then to dealing with the problem of lust is a decision to train our minds, to focus our minds in such a way that we're able to look at a person of the opposite sex and see a person, a sister in Christ, a brother in Christ, rather than an object. So God created male. He created us male and female as, as sexual beings with potential and privilege to enter into a, a marriage relationship for companionship, for shared fulfillment. And in this context, sex is good. So we see that we were created for companionship with all the sexual aspects that relationship implies. But that companionship was to, designed to exist in a committed relationship. So then we were created not only for companionship, but we were created for commitment. And that commitment has been known for centuries to us as marriage. When God created Eve and He brought her to Adam in the garden, He joined them together for life. Right there in the garden, that was the first marriage in human history. 
And since that time, men and women have, have entered into, into this covenant relationship called marriage in which they've agreed to live their lives together as partners. So we share our lives together. We face life together, the ups and downs of life. And if it's God's will, we, we reproduce and we have children together. We share burdens together. We grow old together. And a major part of that relationship is sexual intimacy. Remember, God is totally pro-sex when sex is within the context of the marriage relationship. That's the message of the seventh commandment and the passage we're looking at today. When God says you shall not commit adultery, He confines the proper area for sexual relationships to marriage. So you could say it like this. Sex is for marriage and only for marriage. And while I'm here, let me just go ahead and say this. By marriage, I mean the committed relationship of a man and a woman. There is no room in Scripture for marriage between two men or between two women. And let me also be clear about this. There is no room in, for, in Scripture for heterosexual sin through premarital or extramarital sex either. Sex belongs in marriage and only in marriage. It's a, it's a beautiful act that comes out of the marriage covenant. It's more than just an action. Someone has said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And adultery does that in spades. Sex is risky business. By its very definition, it is one of the most intimate encounters two people can have. And because it is intimate... It puts us in a vulnerable situation. That's why God confines it to the committed relationship of a marriage. In a Christ-centered marriage, trust can grow. Love and devotion and respect, communication, confidentiality, loyalty all come with the covenant of marriage. When, when a person violates that trust, then they violate another person. So adultery is not merely a sin against God. It's also a sin against another person or persons. It's a sin against yourself. We don't, we don't live in isolation because adultery causes pain, right? It destroys relationships, many times two families at a time. It destroys self-esteem. It, it devastates whole families, emotionally crushing our spouses and crippling our children in many cases. And it's for these reasons that God so opposes adultery. And that's why Jesus not only affirms the seventh commandment, but also expands it to include the heart attitude behind it as well. Avoiding the lustful longing as well as the lustful acts protects our self-worth, beloved. It protects the sanctity of our marriage, the welfare of our, of our children, and our relationship to the Father. There's great truth in the popular proverb, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. It'll serve us well, I believe, to look at some practical suggestions that I want to offer today that are designed to help us avoid falling into the snare of sexual sin. All of us, I'm sure, want to know how to safeguard our marriages or be reminded of some things we already know, perhaps. All of us, I hope, are interested in, in, in how to avoid becoming involved in relationships that are doomed to fail. There are several things we can do. For one, 
Anticipate and expect temptation to come. Anticipate and expect temptation to come. Be prepared. Paul told Timothy to flee from youthful lusts. Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife when she attempted to seduce him. But, but listen, beloved, you can't flee a burning building if you don't know where the exits are. If you don't plan for a way of escape, you, you, you likely won't run when you're confronted with a, a lustful glance from the opposite sex, a, an X-rated website or, or some other type of sexual temptation. When faced with a moral invitation, don't fuel it, don't feed it, don't analyze it. Don't, don't put it on the shelf and come back to it in an hour. Just run for the door and don't look back. I pray daily in line with the model prayer that Jesus gave us to, for God to help me to see temptation as it comes near, as it's on the horizon, and to give me the strength to avoid that temptation before it ever comes near to me. Be prepared for temptation. And, and really closely related to that, be merciless with temptation. In today's culture, and sadly even in some churches, we're encouraged implicitly, if not explicitly, to be kind of soft when it comes to sin. Yet, the athletic imagery that Paul uses when he teaches about resisting sin is so strenuous. He says, I discipline my body. I beat my body. Bruise. This is a very graphic word in the Greek. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Beloved, if you're a Christian and you just can't resist looking at a pornographic website, then you're obviously not where you need to be spiritually. A helpful tool that I would offer is, is what's called blocking or accountability software for your devices. I use one called Accountability to You. My wife right now, she always has been, but usually I have another man in the church who's also an accountability partner. And boy, did she get a bunch of alerts this week when I did the research on this sermon. <laughs> I mean, Accountability to You, you can go anywhere you want to go, any website you want to go to, guys, gals. But somebody else is going to know when you went there, how long you stayed there, and what was the nature of the website. Accountability to you. It's on, it's, it's one, it's, there's a lot of them out there. That's just one of them. And I, I use that not because I have a struggle with pornography, but because as a pastor, I'm called to be above reproach. And this is one way I can help, one area that I can, I can be that. So we're talking about merc being merciless toward temptation. Not only comes in, in, on the Internet, it comes with coworkers and friends whom we find attractive. Listen, if, if you can't run when Potiphar's wife turns her charm onto you, you need to do what it takes to strengthen yourself, including avoiding that person altogether or only be around, being around them when, when other folks are present. The bottom line is this, and you know me, I'm just going to cut right to it. Grow up. Quit making excuses for your weak morals. Quit being a, a spiritual weakling and giving in to sexual sin. Determine that you're not going to be that kind of person. It's not complicated. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit within us to help us fight sexual sin. Our Father has given us everything that we need. We have to decide our personal holiness is worth fighting for, and beloved, it is. And secondly, get some help here, actually do something about fighting it. 
Decide it matters and then do something. Prepare for temptation. Be merciless toward it. And then don't spend too much time alone. Many people are, are, are vulnerable to moral compromise because they simply spend too much time alone. God designed us to live in community. Perhaps King David, if he'd been where he was supposed to be with his men in the battle, on the battlefield instead of lounging around on his rooftop back home, would not have been privy there to witness Bathsheba bathing. You are less likely to succumb to temptation if you're busy and you're surrounded by family and or Christian friends. As one writer, writer put it, if you're alone, don't be idle. If you're idle, don't be alone. Prepare. Be ready to face temptation. Be merciless toward temptation. Don't spend too much time alone. And beloved, stay faithful in the practice of spiritual disciplines. Nothing makes the heart grow colder than a lack of quiet time with God. C.H. Spurgeon said, Prayer will make you leave off sinning, or sinning will make you leave off praying. If you've spent time with Jesus in the morning, you are more likely not to ask Delilah to cut your hair off in the evening. If you're too busy with your work or your hobbies to pray and read the Bible, you're already headed toward a spiritual train wreck. Statistics, in fact, show a remarkable difference in the incidence of pornography use and adultery among those who are in church every single week and are daily in the Word and on their knees in prayer. And then part of what it means to be faithful in our practice of spiritual disciplines is to confess our sins regularly. This can be very difficult for us. But, but transparency can put you on the path to sexual purity. You can't expect to be holy and pure if, if there's a cesspool of ugly secrets within that you refuse to deal with. We want two things fundamentally to happen when we confess and repent. One, we want the air to be cleared between us and God. And so we come to Him and we say, Have mercy on me, God, according to Your steadfast love. According to Your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Confession and repentance always restore the joy of our salvation. And we enjoy fresh fellowship and forgiveness by the grace of our Father. And secondly, we want our horizontal relationships to be clean and, and open. Not only is the air clear between us and God, but our relationships with one another are clean and clear and open because so much pain comes into life. And even physical pain comes into life. What the psalmist say? I kept my sin within and my bones wasted away. So there's healing that comes at the horizontal level as well as the vertical level when we confess our sins to the Father and perhaps, uh-oh, confess our sins one to another. That's in the Word somewhere too, I believe, right? Be prepared for temptation and be merciless toward it. Don't spend too much time alone. Stay faithful in the practice of spiritual disciplines, including confessing your sins regularly. And then this one, especially for married couples, Keep the home fires burning. I've met and had a lot of discussions with a lot of Christian men who struggle with all kinds of temptation from an addiction to pornography to serial adultery. And after talking to many of them, oftentimes what comes out of the conversation is that they have, for whatever reason, 
given up on regular spiritual intimacy with their spouse. Apostle Paul spoke to this very directly. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps for an agreement, by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then, should be then, come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So clearly here, spouses have a co-equal responsibility to fulfill one another sexually. And if the fires have gone out and your marriage, first of all, let me say I'm sorry, but I encourage you to find a counselor. Go on a marriage retreat. You know, book a weekend where the two of you just get away. Whatever, okay? God can handle this. God can rekindle romance and restore desire that has waned. And I urge you to deal with this issue or irreparable damage will be done. To your marriage relationship. And then, last one, get regular spiritual checkups. Adults are, are encouraged to, we go to the doctor, I got a doctor's appointment coming up this Wednesday. It's my regular uh, Medicare uh, physical. Many of you know what I'm talking about there. And we do that to help get, get in front of perhaps some kind of maybe heart issues or cancer or diabetes or other problems. Yet many of us never open up our spiritual lives to input from pastors or a, or a brother or a sister or some kind of spiritual mentor. And many pastors, I would say the vast, vast majority of pastors, have no one to examine them. Learn to ask for prayer, beloved, and counsel. Share your struggles and weaknesses. If you detect a weak spot in your armor, don't wait until the devil blows you out of the water to ask someone for help. Spiritual death happens one compromise at a time. Be prepared for temptation and be merciless toward it. Don't spend too much time alone. Don't leave off your spiritual disciplines. Confess your sins regularly. Keep the home fires burning. And then get regular checkups. And finally, let me just say in conclusion that sexual sin is not the great unpardonable sin. You may be sitting here this morning and you have committed that sin, young person, old person. Right now you're feeling that in, the, in your gut and maybe your palms are a little sweaty and you, you feel a sense of conviction over your own unfaithfulness, your own promiscuity. If you are, you need to understand something. You need to understand that God's grace is bigger than your sin. If you're willing to bring your sin to Jesus, He's willing to forgive you. His blood shed on Calvary and payment for your sin can cleanse you of every sin right now. If you confess your sin to God, He can and He will grant you His forgiveness. Just like the woman 
caught in adultery, right, in the very act of adultery, and cleansed on the basis of her repentant spirit, so Christ will cleanse you if you have a repentant heart. If you've already had sex, young person, and you truly regret that decision, the first step is to stop right now. Stop that sexual relationship and begin with a renewed commitment to purity. Your past does not have to determine your future. Purity can begin today. Make a commitment to God and renew that commitment every single day. Decide you're going to draw the line and tell God that with His help, you're not going to cross that line ever again until you're married. And accept this, accept that you can't stick to that promise without His help. That's one reason why it's so important for you to renew this commitment every single day. And then here it is again. Avoid the situations that tempt you. Avoid the situations that tempt you. Don't put yourself in situations where you're going to be easily tempted. And that includes this. That includes where you allow your mind to go. Guard your mind because it all starts... Everything we talked about today starts there. Remind yourself what God has to say about sex and trust what God says about sex. We need to be careful, beloved, what we fill our minds with. Imagination is often the hotbed where sin is hatched. And remind you of something else. God is watching. God's always watching. You're never completely out of His sight. Your, your, your Savior can always see you. Remember the cross. Jesus died for your sins, including your sexual sins. And remember this, He's coming back, and we're all going to have to give an account for our lives. Keep fighting and don't give in. And beloved, always remember that we experience God's total forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God does not offer partial forgiveness. God does not offer conditional forgiveness. He offers total forgiveness. God, God loves you. And He desires that you experience the most fulfilling sex and love and marriage possible. To, to experience God's best for you, you've got to move forward today, regardless of your past, young people I'm talking about, and save sex until you're married. And if you're already married, married lock in on this. Sex, including lust, is only designed to be exercised within the marriage the covenant of marriage. I promise you, both groups, it's well worth it. May God grant us all the power to live with clean hands and clean hearts before Him. May God give us the ability to affair-proof our marriages and to keep our pleasure undefiled. May, may God give those of you who are not married to keep yourself pure from this day forward and to flee temptation and may God help us all to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, a difficult passage in, in 
section of Scripture for us to examine this morning. And yet, so important to you that you included it in your Holy Word. So we're thankful for the chance to examine it and to have your Holy Spirit examine our hearts wherever we're at in this room with regard to these issues, Father. I know that your Holy Spirit has dealt with us, some struggling, some on the mountaintop of resistance. A wonderful place to be. Father, I just pray that for those here who are struggling in these areas that we've mentioned, that they would make a decision today to draw the line in the sand and say no more. And to ask you to repent, to confess, to repent, and to ask you to come alongside them and help them, and perhaps even for them to have the courage to go to a brother or a sister and, and talk with them about that. To, 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 Father, to find someone who can be an accountability partner for them. We want individually for our hearts to be pure, to walk in obedience and righteousness. And, and Father, we know that if we can do that individually, collectively, there's nothing this church can't do to glorify you. If we're a church full of people who are committed to, to clean hearts and pure hearts and clean hands, Lord God, there's nothing you won't do through us to glorify yourself and to edify us. That's what we long for, Father, to glorify you in everything we do and say and think even. I pray for those who are here, Father, this morning and their struggles is, is bigger even than sexual temptation or sexual failings. Their issue is with a failure to come to your son, Jesus Christ. They've yet to relinquish control of their life to your son. They're yet mired in their sins. They're destined for hell. I pray, Father, that your spirit has spoken to them today as we have shared what Christ has promised, what Christ has already done in his finished work on the cross. And that today, they would turn to you, receive salvation and forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life, whether they come and talk to me or, or to another one of the pastors or to another brother or sister here in the church family. Let them not delay, Father. I pray that you would continue to pour conviction upon their hearts and minds that they would not delay taking care of that bit of eternal business. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.